Well, many are thinking it and have asked if uh, my washing machine broke and if I had to borrow a pair of my wife's pants. I didn't borrow a pair of her pink pants. These are salmon pants. They are not pink pants, all right? So uh, there's salmon. That is the masculine color. And uh, when your wife says, hey, you don't wear those pants that I bought you. And you've been avoiding it for as long as you can. And she's like, I really like those pants that I bought you. Yeah, but I don't really like them. But you just, happy wife, happy life, all right? Can I get an amen from the husbands here in the room? Get a witness this morning. So, But it's great to have each and every one of you. We're concluding our series entitled Soulology, and we're going to go to Ecclesiastes chapter number 12. Once again, let me welcome you and say thank you for coming. It is wonderful to see each and every one of you, and we're thankful for this opportunity to gather here and to open up the Word of God and to have it taught to us. And I do pray that God would speak to you this morning. Morning. And uh, there's so many things that are happening, so many things that are going on. And the fact that you would take time out of your busy schedule, it says a lot. Thank you so much. I know that it's because you have a, put a priority on hearing from God. And that's what we're asking. That's what we're hoping would happen. Just a little bit of review. The book of Ecclesiastes is really the book of a man by the name of King Solomon. King Solomon was a man who inherited the throne from his father, David. And he gets the throne and Solomon starts out great. He He has an understanding heart. God gives him wisdom. God gives him wealth. And then Solomon wants to go on kind of a journey. He wants to experience life to the full, so to speak. And so in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's kind of how he kind of channeled all of his life. He looks at all everything and he kind of gives himself to everything. The Bible says that in the first couple chapters, he said, hey, I tried everything. When it came to buildings, when it came to influence, when it came to relationships, when it came to uh, a part and having fun. He just gave himself to it. And so really the life of Solomon is the case of a man who was interested in everything but satisfied by nothing. And couldn't you look around at life today? How many of you have ever gone to Las Vegas and you've seen that look on people when you're in Las Vegas? Man, Las Vegas is the lights, the glitz, the glamour, and man, it's a fun place to go. But then all of a sudden, you get in the airport when you're ready to leave, you can see the people that are coming, they're all happy. And then everybody else that's going, oh man, their eyes are bloodshot, their wallets are empty, and all of a sudden, that, that look that, that nothing satisfies, it's just on their face. It's just there. Solomon, he tried everything and he came to the conclusion, he said, that all is vanity. Vanity means empty. It means it's not worth anything. And he came to this conclusion. And so Solomon, he thought satisfaction, he thought significance would be found in his accomplishments, his achievements, the things that he did, and he didn't find the satisfaction there. And it kind of reminds me of the fact that we like to measure ourselves, don't we? I've always not necessarily been the tallest person, but earlier when I was younger, I was a whole lot shorter. I wasn't, didn't break five feet tall until I was 15. Always a short person. So going to uh, amusement parks, there was always like that dreaded sign before you got on the ride. Do you know what a sign I'm talking about? It's the sign that says you must be 48 inches tall. Now, 48 inches tall is not very tall, but man, that kept you from a lot of good rides, all right? And I know I'm, I'm terrified of big roller coasters, but there's some little roller coasters that, that I have a blast on, right? You know, the merry-go-round's a good roller coaster, you know? Uh, the, the water ride, the little bumper boat thing, that's a good wild ride. I mean, those are good rides for me, okay? But 48 inches tall, and all of a sudden, man, you get up there, and you spend stuffing the tissue in your shoes. You're trying to just measure up, right? You're trying to just be just tall enough to kind of make it. But you know what? I found that the measuring up 
didn't just stop at the amusement park. I found that as soon as I got into high school, everything else kind of changed. All of a sudden, it's like, wait a minute, there's some cute girls over there, and you gotta, you got to be able to bench press so much, or you've got to be able to make the three-point shot. And all of a sudden, now I'm trying to measure up so that I can get some attention. But you know, it didn't stop for me in high school. Then I got to college, and in college, you start working, and in college, you start competing for uh, uh, better grades, and all of a sudden, now I'm trying to measure up with academics. Now I'm trying to measure up with success because I'm just entering my career. But it doesn't just start with college, does it? It kind of goes into life with you. All of a sudden, you start your career, and now you're trying to measure up. You're trying to make sure you look good in front of the boss. Or all of a sudden, you have a little family, and now you want your little family. you got to measure up with all the other pictures on Facebook. And man, you're trying to make sure your family looks just right in the pictures and you find yourself just measuring everything you're just going through life and everything you're just measuring yourself and everybody's kind of doing this remember what we used to do i always had uh, two older brothers so we would do this we'd get up to each other and be like yep i'm the same height yep mm -hmm." and what are you doing i found that i would just find that i was measuring myself against everybody else thinking yep i measure up why because there was something lacking inside of me but instead of dealing with what was inside, I just thought, as long as I'm better than that person, oh, I make more, I got more cars, or I have better this, or my wife this, or my husband this, all of a sudden now, I'm trying to measure myself. You see, we come to Ecclesiastes chapter number 12, and we find that finally Solomon is measuring what matters. Would you write that down as a title? Because God loves people that take notes in church, and I'm telling you, you get a bigger mansion if you take notes in church, all right? So you're, you, you need to understand that we need to measure what matters. Oftentimes, we measure that we matter. That's all, honestly a lot of what we measure, isn't it? We just want to know that we matter. Instead of understanding that, wait a minute, God wants us to get to the point where we're measuring what actually matters. Solomon, he said, I built buildings and I tore them down, built bigger buildings. I built a palace. He built a temple in seven years. He built his house in 13 years because why? He wanted a bigger house and he wanted this and he thought this would bring satisfaction and they didn't. It was all empty. So finally, we get to the last two verses of Ecclesiastes. And honestly, if you didn't have these last two verses, Ecclesiastes would just really be a sad, depressing book. But we come to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse number 13. Here's what scripture tells us. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. He's summing the entire book up, everything that he's been on. And he comes up with, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. And I know sometimes you see the word judgment, we're thinking, oh man, I don't know if I necessarily like that word judge. We just passed up on the uh, Summer Olympics not too long ago, and uh, what would happen would be is an Olympian would go perform, compete, and then they would look up to the judges stand, and what would the judges do? The judges hold up a number. So this is not God casting judgment, this is God holding up a number. And so we see that that's what he's talking about here, but the Bible is really wanting us to focus on verse 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. We're measuring what matters. Let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter, okay? So let's measure what matters. Would you touch your neighbor and say, let's measure what matters? Say, let's measure what matters. Let's measure what matters. I remember that my grandparents, they used to fly everywhere. They had a six-person pastor, Cessna, and man, they would get to airports, and all of a sudden, you'd say, well, how big is your airplane? They'd say, well, mine's a two-seater. Mine's a four-seater, and they had a six-seater, you know? And uh, then once they couldn't fly everywhere, then they got an RV, and all of a sudden, they'd pull up next to 
somebody had an RV and they would say, how long's your RV? And they would say, you know, RV is uh, 38 feet. And they were like, yeah, ours is 39, you know. And it was all about trying to do the measurement. But those measurements don't matter. Here's what actually matters. And here's what we need to get focused on this morning. Because everything else is just crowding out what God wants to do. Today we live with full lives but empty souls. Do you know why our souls are empty? Because we're filling it with things that don't actually matter. I've found that too often we need what I call a soul detox. You say, what do you mean a soul detox? I've heard of a food detox or a whole 30. I've heard of that, but I haven't heard of a soul detox. This is where we get the pollution out of our soul because I don't believe it's necessarily that we have an empty soul. It's that we put so much into it. There's pollution. There's things inside of it. The Bible says in first Peter, he was, Peter is speaking to Christians and he says, dearly beloved, I beg you as strangers and pilgrims abstain from sinful lust, which war against the soul. He didn't say your body. He said these things war against your soul. There are some things you can put into your life that they're actually destroying your soul. And so he's saying let's guard against those. I remember growing up that my dad, he loved these little green leafy vegetables. And he would take these little green leafy vegetables. He would drop them into a pot of boiling water. He would steam them. Then he would serve these little vile green leafy things things to you. And then you couldn't eat them. So he had this great idea that said, you know what? Mayonnaise or mayonnaise, depending on how you like to pronounce it, mayonnaise or mayonnaise, he would put mayonnaise on it and say, now eat it. Tastes better. Are you kidding me? It went from bad to worse. Like the two things I hate the most in life is mayonnaise and Brussels sprouts. These little nasty things called Brussels sprouts. Do I have anybody that can give me a witness that Brussels sprouts are bad? Thank you so much. All right. They're terrible. They're awful. But then a couple of years ago, a church family invited us over. And you know what? I try to be a good guest. When anybody invites me over, whatever you serve me, I'm going to eat. All right. It doesn't matter because I want to be a good guest. I'm going to eat it all. I'm going to clean my plate. And if it's good, I'll lick my plate. And it's one of those things where it comes to the food. You just want to, you eat it all. And all of a sudden they had these little green vegetables that they, I just kept piling on. These things were so good. I couldn't believe it. They were cut up in little nice squares and my wife's just giggling the entire time and I'm just like what in the world and I'm just scooping on these vegetables they were so good I kept going for seconds and thirds these vegetables were awesome and then on the way home she said do you know what you just ate I said I don't know it was good what was like little chopped up I, I don't know what it was she was like those were Brussels sprouts I said no they weren't she said no those were Brussels sprouts I said those were not Brussels sprouts woman submit and uh, it was one of those little arguments all right and uh, uh, so uh, she came back and she was like no, I got the recipe. It's Brussels sprouts. You cut them up. You don't boil them. You bake them. You add sea salt and you add a little olive oil, a little pepper, and they taste awesome. I said, are you kidding me? For all those years, my dad made me choke down those vile things. Man, I couldn't believe it. It was all in the preparation. And some of us, we're putting stuff in and some of us, we don't even appreciate the good stuff because we don't have taste for the good things of God. And it's all about the preparation. And that's why we at Southridge, we try to 
have a warm environment. We try to have an environment where you can bring a guest, where you may be able to bring somebody who is, does not proclaim to be a Christian, where they won't choke on the word, but they can receive it and they can be transformed by it because there's something here that they can receive. Because today people are filling their lives full of things that are destructive and hurtful. Why? Because first of all, we see in verse number 13, the Bible says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. And he says two words, fear God. He starts there. And you say, why would he start with fear God? Why would he say those two words? Here's why. Because we have the tendency that we are easily seduced into settling for substitutes. You and I are easily seduced into settling for a substitute. So God says, fear me. What does it mean to fear him? It means to honor, to reverence him. It means to put him first in your life, that he's just there. Some of us, we have a healthy fear of things, so it's a reason why why we wouldn't do certain things. We know that if we break the law, we're in jeopardy of being arrested or thrown into prison. We have a healthy fear of the law. We know that there are certain things that'll cross a boundary with our spouse. So we have a healthy fear of our spouse. So there's certain things we don't do. God is saying, hey, keep me first, that fear, and don't substitute because we have this tendency to find a substitute for God. Our hearts, our souls are idol-making factories. We love to find an idol. We love to find something else to work. Do you remember in Exodus where Moses for the first time, uh, if you don't remember, I'll just go back over it. uh, Moses going up to the mountain and on top of the mountain, Moses receiving the 10 commandments. But what was Moses brother doing? Moses brother was down there saying, Hey, it's been 40 days. My brother's not back. He's probably dead. All the guys give me your golden earrings. Okay. So the guys all got together, gave him golden earrings. And he said, okay, Moses gone. God's gone. So we need to make our own God. So they take all the gold and they melt it down and they make a little calf. And they make this golden calf, the Bible says. And a calf is a baby cow. So they didn't get a big cow. They got a baby cow. And they made a golden statue. And he said, now let's worship the baby cow. How do we worship the baby cow? And Aaron makes up an occult right then and there. And all these people start worshiping a baby cow. Why? It didn't take long for us to find a substitute. And your heart and my heart is always looking for these things. So here's what what Solomon said. He said, guys, let's start with this. Fear God. Put him first. The Bible says in Matthew 6, 33, but seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you because we are so prone to forget about God, to look away. There's an old hymn that we sang and it's simply entitled, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of this earth will grow strange dim. Why would, the, why would the hymn writer say, look full in his wonderful face? Do you remember when you first fell in love and when you were with that person, you would just look them in the eyes and a, a, a pretty girl or a handsome guy could walk by and it didn't matter. Why? Because you were looking full in somebody's face. So it didn't matter what would walk by because you just saw this image and that image to you just caught you. It captivated you. So the songwriter says, hey, look full in his face. Why would he go on to say, and, and and, and that, that not even look full in his face, but also that things of the earth will go strangely dim. He's saying, hey, when you have this desire for that, everything else pales in comparison. So first of all, fear God. Start there. Start with that. 
Stop putting the stuff in your life that's poisonous, that's toxic. These things that will start to erode your life. Things that aren't healthy. I used to love going to Baja Fresh. This is before the days of Chipotle and, 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 Ruby, and Rubio's and those kind of things. So you had Baja Fresh. And I remember going into Baja Fresh. And a lot of my illustrations are going to have to do with food. So if you're hungry, I totally apologize. And uh, so I remember going to Baja Fresh. And I used to love enchiladas. And man, I got these enchiladas from Baja Fresh. But that night, those enchiladas, they did not love me back. Man, it was horrible. We will not go into the details, all right? It was awful. And so the next day, all of a sudden, man, I couldn't even... I couldn't even handle Baja Fresh. I go in there and I'm just like, I just can't do it. And it's even worse. My wife will try to make enchiladas. And I used to love enchiladas. And I start getting around enchiladas and it's all of a sudden these memories come flooding back. And my body said, hey, this poison, whatever you put inside of yourself, it's not staying here. There's some things we put inside of ourselves that don't belong inside of us and it can't stay there. Let's purify our hearts. That's why I love communion. It's a time where we say, God, I once again want to have a right relationship with you. Why is it so important that you have that right relationship? Because your life and my life is going to go through tremendous trials and stress and struggles. And it's those moments where we know that we need to have a rock that we can run to. I love Hebrews chapter number 6 verse 19. It says, there's a hope we have as an anchor of the soul. Isn't that awesome that we have this hope and it's like an anchor for our soul. That in the midst of everything going wrong, in the midst of all that's happening, you and I have an anchor that we can sink down. Now, I love the analogy until I think about what an anchor does. Anybody ever gone on a cruise? You've been on a cruise ship? Anybody? A few of you. What they do is they'll go to Puerto Vallarta or you'll go to Cancun or you'll go to Catalina and they'll, they'll go out just where the water's deep enough and they'll drop an anchor. And then all of a sudden they'll tell you who's over aboard. They'll say, hey, you can go into the city for the next 10 hours. And you can enjoy the town and go eat and, and buy some stuff and you can enjoy yourself. We've dropped anchor. This ship isn't going in anywhere. That's kind of a great thing. But what about when you're going in the middle of a storm, your life is all upside down and God says, guess what? We just dropped anchor. You're saying, no, 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 let's not drop anchor here. Let's drop anchor where there's calm waters. Let's drop anchor where I do have a job. Let's drop anchor where the marriage is going well. Let's drop the anchor there. Sometimes we like the analogy of an anchor, but most of the time, if we're honest, we don't really like the analogy of an anchor. Actually, what we would rather have is the analogy of a helicopter god. God, you swoop in, you rescue me out of my situation, you take me to where it's nice and beautiful. God, I don't want an anchor, I want a helicopter. Right now, this anchor is not working because you just drop anchor in the midst of this hell, in the midst of this chaos. And God, this isn't what I planned on. This is what I want. But God says, hey, I'm your anchor. There's a hope that's steadfast, sure, and secure that we have this hope in him. And because he said, fear me, keep me first, because our hearts are easily seduced. So maybe you're in a situation, you say, what do I do? And you've dropped the anchor and it's time to ride out the storm. It's time to ride it out. And what's going to happen is you're going to see that God was good, is good, and will be good. This is what Solomon is saying. Here's the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God. But then he goes on to say, and keep his commandments. What is he talking about? The commandments. The word commandments, he is referring literally to the Ten Commandments. But what did Jesus say about the commandments? He said, hey, I've come to fulfill the law. Jesus fulfilled it. But what did Jesus do? He says, I give you a new commandment. Love God and love your neighbor. 
The new commandment is love God and love your neighbor. So if we were to look at this passage and we were to apply it to today's church, to today's people, we have to understand that what this verse is talking about is that we're to love God and then we're to love others. That's what it's talking about. So we need to understand that you and I were created with a huge capacity for compassion. You have a capacity for compassion. God created you with this capacity to love others. It's built in. You say, I'm not extroverted or I'm introverted or I don't really like people. Matter of fact, people gross me out. So I come to the nine o'clock service because I don't have to be around people. And this is why I like this place. All right. Not, there's not a lot of people. And you need to understand that God gave you a capacity to show compassion. Some of you, you'll drive down the freeway. You'll see somebody whose car's broken down. You may stop or you may not stop, but a part of you says, oh, as you drive by. And all the ladies, it's so funny. Whenever there's a new baby, all the ladies, they like to go see the new baby. Oh, and they, they just kind of say all oh, over it or something like that. Why? Because we have this capacity to show compassion on others. And what he's saying, and he's saying, hey, here's what it's all about. It's all about loving God. And it's all about loving others. He said, really, let's boil life down. Life is all about God and it's all about others. It's all about helping one another. See, we come to chapter 11 and Solomon is discovering that soul satisfaction was looking for, that he was looking for, wasn't the things he built. It was all of a sudden, it was in the people you help, the people that are around you. Let me ask you a question. Isn't it, when you grew up or when you were younger, do you remember telling friends and family or do you remember, did they ever ask you this? What do you want to be when you grow up? Does anybody ever remember getting asked that? Isn't it funny that at maybe four or five, somebody would ask us that? And what would you say? You say something like, oh man, I want to be a princess. I I didn't say a princess, but I'm just saying for the ladies. I'm trying to refer to the ladies, okay? You're like, well, I don't know, pink pants, I don't know. And uh, so you would say something, don't do that, Mike. I saw Mike's like, yeah, I know, I know what's going on, yeah. And uh, some of you say, I'm going to be a firefighter. Or some would say, I'm going to be a police officer. I'm going to be an army man. Or I'm going to be a G.I. Joe. Or you think of some cartoon or you think of some some movie. You're like, that's what I'm going to be when I grow up. You, You ever thought about why we do that? Is it because you're thinking that, man, I'm four years old and I really need medical. Whew, I better get a job. <laughs> like, honestly, at four years old, man, it's the best ever. You have maid service, you have food service, you have free room and board. Why would we ever want to mess that up? I mean, that was golden. That was prime. Are you looking back and at four years old, five years old, thinking, man, I'm really worried about my 401k. Whoo, retirement's coming. I'm five years old. I better get on the ball, man. Whoo, I need a job. No, nobody's thinking that. But why are, why are we talking about a career? Why are we talking about it? Because inside of us, there's a passion something. There's this drive from the very young age to be more than we are. And it starts, we're so young. I look at my children, I'm thinking already, wow, seven years old and five years old, and they already have this desire to do things, to become something. You say, why is this so important? Because that's how God wired you. God wired you to do something with your life. But a lot of people, you've gotten sucked into a profession, and God wants you to have as a passion. God doesn't just want you to have a profession, he wants you to have a passion. And with that passion, you use your compassion on people. You say, I've got this great capacity to serve 
others, to bless others, to help others. So my soul needs not just a profession, but it needs a passion to help people, to serve people. Here Solomon is coming alive and he's saying, hey, I missed it, y'all. Yeah, I got a great house, but guess what? There's going to come a day and age where that house is going to do me no good because my soul's going to go on to eternity. And he said, he looked at all that he had built, all the gardens and the kingdom, and he knew it was all going to come to naught. What really mattered was the people you impact, the lives that you touch, the people that keep going. Last week, it was so awesome. We had a Father's Day and just place was packed out, both services. It was awesome. Normally, Father's Day and attendance is like way down here, but we just had a great Father's Day. It was so much fun. Uh, we had the mechanical pool, the car show, and we had barbecue for everybody. It just turned out to be a great day. Loved it. One of the guys came up to me afterward. He said, hey, my high school coach is here. I just thought, man, isn't that cool? This man is now in his late 30s. Probably been 15, almost 20 years since he had seen his coach. And all of a sudden, his coach showed up. And you know what? He was taking a picture with him. He was texting his friends. I saw on his Facebook, he was talking about, good to see this coach. And I thought, wow, this man is in his twilight years. But the other man, he's in his prime. And he's getting to influence the next generation. That's what matters. This man has a legacy that he's passing on. You see, you have a great capacity for compassion. It's how God wired you. It's how God made you. And God wants you to live that out. God wants you to help other people. You see, too many people are traveling through life looking for their own. Too many people are traveling through life looking for their own. They're looking for their life. They're looking for meaning. They're looking for significance. They're looking at everything and they're missing it. And maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, you know what, I, I got all these limitations and I got all these things where I, I can't be used and I, and, I, and I can't do anything great and I'm, and I'm so limited and it just reminds me of the fact that God does extraordinary things to things that don't make sense. I like to say it like this. Would you write this in your notes? Would you simply write Q the bumblebee? Cue the bumblebee. You say, why would you say cue the bumblebee when it comes to using my life and ministering? Because did you know scientifically the bumblebee should never fly? Scientists are baffled at how the bumblebee flies. They look at it and they say it's not aerodynamic, that big old thorax and body, and some of you are amazed that I knew the word thorax, and uh, you know those little old wings, like how does that bumblebee fly? It baffles scientists. And maybe you're looking at your life and you're thinking, I can't be used, God can't use. Yes, God can. Yes, God will. It was 2010, we had just had Megan, and I'm literally by my wife's bedside, and I'm working on a camp that we're supposed to put on the next week. And I'm typing away, and my wife's kind of frustrated that, hey, I'm about to give birth and you're working on stuff for a camp that you're going to do in a week. And uh, it was just an awkward situation. And we went and had this camp up in the mountains and uh, uh, up by uh, the grapevine. We went up there and it kind of seemed like a bad time for me. I had just had a new daughter. And we go up there and there was one of these guys that I meet up there. His name is John. And John is an interesting character because we lived, the camp was on a mountain. You'd have to drive up. And I had this four-wheel quad. And so you see everybody else hiking up the mountain and there'd be John. And I always thought, and I would always offer John a ride. You say, why? And I would, I would drive by 200 other campers, but I always stopped for John and I always offered John a ride. And every time I offered John a ride, John would always say no. John always said no. Every time. 
And then we would play games. We have games like Punjabi Can Can where you steal the tire and everything. And I'd tell John, John, you don't need to play the game. Don't, don't, it's too rough. The guys will attack you. And John, I couldn't keep him out. We had another game. It was called Scalp Him. And you put a piece of duct tape on the back. And basically, it was a no holds bar between all the guys just were doing whatever they could to rip the piece of duct tape off your back. And then they were throwing bodies around. It was violent. It was fun. And nobody died. We didn't get sued. So it's okay. And, uh, but I would tell John, John, you don't have to do this. And John was like, no, no, I want to. I really want to. You say, man, you're kind of mean camp director. You're keeping this teen from wanting to have fun. The thing with John was that two things. His mom was a heavy drug addict, and he was born with cerebral palsy. The combination of the two, not only did John have a severe handicap in his ability to walk, but then also he had a severe handicap in just his ability to function because of the drugs that his mom took. So while everybody else is kind of walking up the mountain, John would literally almost be on all fours climbing up the mountain. So every time I would stop and I would say, hey, John, jump on, I'll give you a ride. Because he would almost be crawling on all fours just to get up the mountain. And so John was the type, you could not keep him out of any of the games. And then one night after the camp, we would have a message each night, and he came up to me, tears in his eyes, and he was like, God's called me to preach. God wants me to be a pastor. The interesting thing is I didn't really hear too much of John until two weeks ago. He calls me up. He says, hey, just want to let you know, I'm finishing up my study. And he's like, hey, I really feel like God's leading me to come work with you. 2010, this is seven years ago. And here is God taking a person that we would say, he's a bumblebee. Like, like, no, he's a bumblebee. Like, that's going to be his nickname, the bumblebee, because he defies logic, because nothing will stop him. And some of you right now have every excuse, and I get it, we all have the excuses. I can't, I can't witness, or I can't show compassion, because I got this limitation and this, and we all have them. But some of us are going to wake up and say, wait a minute, if the bumblebee defies logic, and I have a God in heaven, and he cares about me more than a bumblebee? Nothing's stopping me. Because you have a great capacity for compassion. But you say this, we were talking about measuring what matters. You measure your compassion by the level of your contribution. Please write that down. You measure your compassion by the level of your contribution. Because here's what happens. I see a lot of Christians today, and they have compassion. But compassion without contribution is counterfeit. Did you catch it? Compassion without a contribution is counterfeit. It's nothing. It doesn't matter. Your compassion is no good if you don't use it. So compassion is so important. I need to back up to chapter number 12, one verse. The Bible says this. It simply says when it comes to compassion, when it comes to being used, here's what he said in Ecclesiastes chapter number 11, verse number one. He says, cast your bread upon the waters for you will find it after many days. What a great verse, isn't it? When I first saw the verse, I was thinking, are you kidding me? I have no idea what that means. I have none. So you start studying all these books, and all of a sudden, the word bread is actually the word seed. And what they would do is they'd take the seed, and during the marsh time, when there was a monsoon, when all the water would cover the fields, that's when they would take the seed, and they would scatter the seed. If you've ever seen a rice field, what do they do? The rice fields are covered with about a foot of water, and then they scatter the seed into the water. And then once over time, a few months later, all of a sudden, the rice plants come forward. You see, it looks like you're scattering the seed. It looks like you're losing the seed. 
But guess what? We've talked about this. Seed is potential. Seed has potential, but it must be put into production. And here's Solomon. He's finally getting it, folks. He's finally getting the fact that, guess what? We need to cast. The word cast means to be generous with it. It means to scatter. It means to take this seed. And you say, I don't know. I'm just giving this away. I can't believe I'm doing this. But what I hear a lot of church people do is this. I'm going to use an illustration. They'll come up to me and they'll say, I saw a homeless person, but I don't give homeless people money because I don't know what they're going to do with the money. So I just give them food. And I know what they're saying. But let me ask you this. If your grandchildren come up to you and say, hey, can I have some money? Do you step back and say, I don't know, you're going to buy drugs and alcohol with it? No. You're like, you're my grandchild. What do you want? A hundred? A thousand? You want the keys to the car? You want a house? What do you want? We'll go to Toys R Us right now, all right? Why? Because of love. When it comes to the gospel, love is not supposed to have strings attached to it. But what's happened with the church? Oh, I don't know if I'm going to help that person. I don't know what they're going to do with with what I help them with. Then is it really love? Is it really Is it really love if I'm constantly saying, okay, uh, to my wife, oh, I'm going to love you, but guess what? I better have three meals a day, three squares a day, better make the bed. Is it really love at that point? Is it really love if there are strings attached? Is it really love? I would say it's not. I would say it's not. And the people that have strings attached to their love, the people that have strings attached to their compassion, guess what? You got strings in other places. You got strings on your children, on your spouse, on your coworkers, on your, uh, your employees. You got strings. And I'll tell you this, people hate it when people have strings, when their strings attached to their love. There's nothing more repulsive about the gospel is that strings attached. I don't think anywhere in the Bible would Jesus say, hey, I helped that person, but guess what? Don't buy any beer. Don't buy any drugs. Hey, do the right thing with that money. And I'm using this illustration, but you could take it and apply it in anywhere. You see, when it comes to your love, when it comes to your generosity, don't put a price on your giving and what you give away. Don't put a price on, 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 on loving people. Don't put a price on saying, hey, I'm going to love people and I'm going to serve them as long as they do what I want. No, love has no limits. Love has none. God didn't say in the Gospels, hey guys, you're supposed to love the lost and love the world, but guess what? Here's the conditions with which you love them. But all of a sudden, the church is famous for putting conditions on on when we will love you. That we will love you if you do X, Y, Z. Instead of understanding that, wait a minute, we are called to reach people that are far from God. People that don't have the gospel. We're running out of time. Acts chapter number 1, verse number 8. The Bible says, and you shall be my witnesses into all the world. And he said, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost. There's four parts of that commission, okay? God expects you and I to at least fulfill 20, 25% of what he's called us to do. Can anybody help me out? How do you spell Jerusalem? I heard it. I heard it. S-A-N-J-O-S-E. That's how you spell Jerusalem. You say, what does God expect of us, Southridge Church? What is God looking down saying, here's what I expect of Southridge Church. I expect Southridge Church to at least fulfill 25% of what I left. At least 25. What's that? That's reaching San Jose. At least. When were we going to get to the point where we say, you know what? Love has no limits. I have a great capacity for compassion. And I measure my compassion by my contribution. So I'm scattering the seed. The Bible says in Luke 7, verse number 47, they brought this woman. And this woman comes to Jesus. And she's washing Jesus' feet with her own hair. And the Bible says this. Jesus stands up for the woman. And he says this. He says, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven. 
given the same love as little. If we've gotten to the point where there's strings attached to our love, what it actually says is we just don't love very much. But when you're finally able to open-handedly love and to give love, irregardless if the person votes the way you do, thinks like you do, dresses like you do, walks like you do, then guess what? I think we are robbing ourselves of an opportunity to sincerely, genuinely change our community and our world. It's because we put up a little stipulation. And I see it. And I'm going to call something out right now. I know. We look at our country and we say, well, this is, this is our country and we've got people coming over here that have a different religious system, a different way of thinking. And you know what? I have children, so parts of me get really scared. But then you know what I have to do? I just have to look and examine my heart and say, God, is that of you? I'm fearful that somebody might put a bomb at my school. But is that fear robbing me of an opportunity to love that person and to present the gospel? Because here's what I bought into, church. I bought into a type of Christianity that says, God, I will go if I'll succeed. But the only thing that God promised was that, guess what? It's not about you obey if you'll succeed, but will you obey even if you'll bleed? Will you obey even if it costs you something? Because compassion needs contribution. And if we are a church that's talking about contribution, then we're no better than what the Bible says in James chapter 2, verse 15, where the Bible says, you see your brother and your sister who is naked, and you say to them, be filled and be warmed? He's saying, it makes no sense. We're measuring things that don't matter, and we're missing at things that truly do matter. So this morning, we see compassion. We can measure it. So what are the limits we put on it? What is God wanting to do? Have you put a price in your participation? Have you stepped back and you've said, here are the people that I minister to, people that look like me, walk like me. I'm honored to God that I get to pastor such a wonderful church. It's the thrill and privilege of my lifetime. But the greatest part of the fact that I love this church is because we have so many different countries represented, so many different ethnicities, people from all different backgrounds. And guess what? People who come here, they still get the same hug, the same handshake, the same warm smile. It's because we've decided to be a church that says, you know what? Our love has no strings attached. At the end of this month, our life group, we're going to be going to a laundromat. We're calling it Laundry Love. And for two hours, we're going to pay for everybody's laundry who's in there. So why are you going to do that? Who goes to laundromats? Usually single moms. Usually people that are down and out. Usually people that they can't afford the machine or they live in a low-income apartment that doesn't have it. Who do you think needs it the most? They do. It's not for us. And guess what? We're not going to tell them we're from the church. We're not going to tell them we're from a church. We're not going to do that. We're done with trying to, hey, we're trying to get you over here to come over here. No, no, no. Our love is real. There's no strings attached. When we serve, when you go into a nursery, when you greet somebody, you usher, you sing in the worship, you're doing it, no strings attached. I just love God. That's why I do it. 
When you got up at 6.30 this morning and drove over to the church to set things up, I hope you did it because you said, I just love God. No strings attached. Whether I get recognized or not, it's no strings attached. So the next time you help somebody who's hurting, don't put any strings. Just say, you know what? God put on my heart to give this to you. And if God just put on your heart to just give them bread and not money, that's fine. That's fine. I'm not saying you need to start giving people money. I'm just saying if God put it on your heart, don't put a condition on it. Just do what God said to do. There's been times where, yeah, I'll give people money. There's been times, yeah, I'll just give them food. There's been times when I won't do anything. Jesus walked through a crowd to the one man by the pool of Bethesda. There was a crowd by that pool. But only one man got a healing that day. We think that's hard. But at least God helped the one. At least he contributed. Each week, we've got wonderful people that work hard. But are you contributing? You talked about compassion, but yet you've got it, but you're not doing anything with it. You're missing out on what God has for you. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you thanking you for this opportunity. Would hearts be touched right now? Would you help us to measure what matters? What matters is God and people. For the sake of this city, we're going to love without strings. For the sake of the gospel, we're going to go 